Episode of Raising Karen. Podcast motivates by an educated parent raising kids with special needs. Hi, guys, welcome to this episode of Raising Karen. I am your host, Marsh Naidu. Today we bring to you the final installment of our Quarantine Strategy series. In this episode, part three, we talk to Misha Davidoff, who is a teacher at a new leaf preschool in Nashville, Tennessee. Misha, as an educator, practices the Reggio method of teaching and today we are going to hear more about this philosophy as well as the restorative power of nature and the importance of being outdoors. So without further ado, let's dive into it. Hello Misha. Hey, how are you Marsh? Doing well, thank you. Your preschool in Nashville is based on the Reggio philosophy. Can you explain a little bit about that to us, Misha? So um, the Reggio approach is, um, first, it's non-dogmatic. So um, it's not hard and fast. And the idea is to, um, so a lot, of, a lot of schools that use the Reggio approach incorporate a lot of elements that people are really familiar with. Um, we use a lot of Montessori materials at our school. Um, we use a lot of different um, discipline approaches. So we implement conscious discipline, um, if you're familiar. Um, so we, we are allowed to blend our model a little bit, come up with an educational practice that works best for us as teachers. Kind of at the core of Reggio Emilia is this idea um, that children are agents. Children are empowered um, and children are extremely important to the fabric of our society. Um, so Reggio started in um, Reggio Emilia, Italy, post-World War II. Um, and basically the idea was um, some members of the Italian population that were affected heavily by World War II um, wanted to create a climate um, in their small towns where children were respected and raised to be conscientious individuals who cared about their societies, cared about the well-being of the people who lived next to them, um, and would ultimately grow up to avoid a world catastrophe like World War II. Um, so it was a way to kind of reclaim kindness in the hearts of children and get them tied into the fabric of their societies instead of just being this thing that we care for and forget about and don't expect to do anything um, except for what we tell them to. So um, citizenship is really the core. It's all about um, raising children and cultivating children and developing with children in a way that helps them feel empowered, helps them feel like they make a difference in the world, and helps them feel like they're relevant contributing members to the society that we participate in every day. This is a really interesting concept to me. I've heard of Montessori before, mm -hmm. but while researching 
the philosophy your preschool is based on, I came across something which I wasn't quite sure about. So I just want to kind of get more clarification on sure. it. It talked about the hundred languages of children. How Certainly. does yeah? What how does that tie in? To the so, Reggio um, Laura Smalaguzzi is the founder of the Reggio Emilia approach. Um, he was kind of the one that blazed the path and started to kind of unify the educational models in Italy to build towards this sort of um, implementation of these ideas that he had. But the Hundred Languages of Children is this, it's a fantastic poem um, that he wrote, but basically... Um, it's sort of held up as this this sort of document that distills the ideas of Reggio Emilia. But basically, the principle is children borrow everything they could ever learn from what they perceive and what they see and what they experience. And the way they learn is not by us dumping content on them. The way they learn is by seeing what we do, absorbing the things we believe, um, and practicing those in real life. So the 100 Languages of Children is sort of a metaphor for the idea that um, children are always watching, children are always listening, and children are able to take the things they see and hear and touch and, and turn them into something relevant for them, something tactile that they make their own, um, which is really special. And and it's something for us as adults um, and me as a teacher to constantly be mindful of, is that the way they learn is to borrow what we do and make it real for them. Misha, what sets you on the trajectory of becoming an educator? And, and what inspired you to incorporate the uh, outdoors in your teaching? So um, I worked in marketing um, for a long time. Uh, really? I was, yes, I was very good at it. Um, I sold telecommunications face to face, so I did face to face sales, uh, and I just I didn't like it. It wasn't me. I was good at it, admittedly. It was a way for me to make money for my family, but it wasn't me. I I um, I hold to the idea that we should all do our part to make a little bit of a difference in somebody's life, and. Um, I, I had been in the field of education before working with young children and I loved it. Um, I lived in Japan for three years, teaching public school there, um, teaching Japanese children how to speak conversational English. Um, and, and I kind of fell in love with nature while I was there. I became friends with a lot of farmers and restaurateurs in a rural area that I lived in. And they sort of showed me the magic that nature has. I mean, Japan is a very small country. But there are still places there that are untouched. There are places that I visited while I was there that no one had been to. No human had stumbled across for 300 years. Um, and, and those are just, they're power spots for me. I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I visited many places while I was there that just made me feel small, but also made me feel like I was one of a pretty large network of things that are constantly interacting in a way I can't understand. Um, and, and that resonates with me. Um, and when I came back to the States, um, I looked for jobs in early childhood education. Um, and that sort of Reggio philosophy, it drew me in. Um, and, and when I, when I um, started working in the field, 
Um, I did a lot of indoor education. Most of my most of what I did was housed in the classroom with a lot of materials, um, a lot of which are mass produced and easily accessible. Um, and we gradually sort of transitioned to this program to being nature focused because we saw the difference that it made in the children. We would hike up in the woods and their play was different. The way they spoke with each other and with their teachers was different. Um, and we couldn't quite put our finger on it, but we knew we wanted to explore it a little more. Um, we were just so impressed with, over time, how hardy the students became. They became more physically and emotionally resilient, um, sort of mentally acute. So they were solving problems that we'd never seen them solve before, regulating in different ways. Um, and I, I sort of started to, there's sort of a, uh, an expression that I like to use a lot, that diamonds are formed under dirt with pressure. And and I just feel like that's so relevant to the lives of children, that we expose them to these adverse situations and these crazy contexts of being outside and being dirty and being having to move over obstacles and move around things and collect stuff um, and observe living creatures. And, it, and it, what it creates in children is... Um, this acuteness, this this um, awareness of what's happening around them, and and their ability to react to it in a meaningful, and productive, and powerful way. This is just a little side uh, side step, but you know that's something I've always thought of being that our intelligence or how we perceive the world is actually a byproduct of our experiences. So I can see sure. how that that outdoor experience would tie into teaching you resilience, being able to uh, adapt to the change. Exactly. Um, exactly. Able, yeah. That, that, um, and that's so, that's so powerful. I mean, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell for me. I mean, the, the idea that, um, you know, that we, we learn where we are is something that it's very easy to forget now more than ever. The world is so small now. I mean, because of the internet, I mean, it, it just, it blows my mind sometimes that children know what a zebra is and they don't know what a squirrel is. And, and you know, and they're everywhere where we are. You know, they see them every day, but no one's ever talked about them because they're not exotic and, and, and they're not special in the minds of people. But but that's that's a misconception that what makes them special is that we see them every day. That our connection to place is one of the things that we can use to sort of start to understand not just who we are, but what role we play. How do we fit into this whole crazy thing that is our society or in a larger context, humanity, or an even larger context of what role do we play in the scope of the world as individuals? you know, acting together or acting separately. And I, and I think um, while we can explain those things to children, um, in my opinion, children don't really learn by us explaining things. They learn by them experiencing these things in a real, in a tactile way. Um, and going outside is what that's all about. It's about letting them form those organic connections of and start to understand not just what they're doing here as individuals, kind of distant islands floating alone, but more importantly, how they function in the context of what the world really is. You know, we, 
we don't just build a microcosm for them to exist in a bubble. You know, they're they're born like all humans in my mind are born to experience their world in the richest possible way, um, and it's how they understand themselves. Misha, how is the current situation regarding the the pandemic uh, and the the corona? virus how is that affecting your school um how is that affecting your school well so it's really difficult for us um i mean we sort of predicate our most of our educational ideas on getting children away from screens um which is kind of tricky because now we're forced to come face to face with those screens and it's how we keep our sense of community going which is so important to our school um that being said, we do use the internet. We use face-to-face communications with our classes to keep those children connected to one another, um, get them taking those meaningful bonds forward, um, even through the COVID crisis and helping them feel like they're not alone. But um, the other part of that is sort of turning the reins over in a certain way to the parents. Um, and, and that is so important. I mean, we, a lot of us have more time than ever at home, um, and it puts a lot of stress on us. And, and Mm -hmm. this idea that learning happens at school, um, is a myth. Learning happens all the time, even when we don't see it, even when we don't recognize it as learning, learning is always happening. And if we are in proximity to children, whether we're an uncle or an aunt or a mother or a father or a guardian or a parent, um, it's our responsibility to look for that learning and seize all the opportunities we can at all times to enrich that learning for them. And, and I think the pandemic is very difficult for a lot of people because um, they're no longer able to share that burden. Um, it used to be that teachers um, and parents and all the guardians could work together to make that happen. As they say, it takes a village to raise a child. But that village just became a village of two people, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> one person, um, which is really hard. Um, you can't do it all. And, and um, so what we've done um, as a staff at A New Leaf um, is take kind of a multi-pronged approach um, and pair that kind of face-to-face connection through the Internet with uh, written uh, blog posts on our virtual blog. Uh, that are designed to give parents the tools to take meaningful natural learning into their own hands. Um, We basically constructed a bunch of series of easy activities with instructions um, for parents to read, consume first, um, gather the materials for, um, and engage with their children in academic context and social emotional context without them ever coming in contact with a screen. Um, we sort of are trying to give them the fuel and the tools um, and the reasons to get outside with their kids um, and engage in the same kind of games, the same kind of activities that we would be doing at school where we in session. Um, yeah. Uh, so, guys, for y'all that are listening this morning, I would really encourage y'all to pop over to um, Misha's website for the school. Uh, Misha, that website, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, sir, is a newlifenashville.org. Mm-hmm. A newlifenashville.org, please. Um, hop on over. There's, uh, I mean, the, the website itself does a great job explaining um, our program philosophy, kind of our ideas, what kind of things we offer, 
Um, and, and our virtual blog is embedded there too. So um, if you're looking for ideas, please hop on over. We've got some good blog posts, all kinds of nature hunts, scavengers, hiking activities you guys can do um, that, that we just adore um, and kind of silly games that are made for the outdoors too. We've got a few that we serialize and play all the time that I know you guys would enjoy. Thank you, Misha. Mm -hmm. Guys, we're going to take a small money break right now. We find ourselves in the middle of Teacher Appreciation Week. Uh, we would like to give a shout out to all those teachers in Dyersburg Primary School who we have been with for uh, these last five years. I hate that we were not able to say goodbye in person uh, with our school here being disrupted, but know that we miss you and here is a little shout out from Kellen. Kellen, who would you like to give a shout out to? Ray Winder and my teachers in office Miss Amber. Miss Amber? And Miss Brooke and my friends. Miss Amber, Miss Brooke and your friends. What message would you like to give to Miss Linda? What would you like to tell Miss Linda? Thank you for giving me the sticker. What sticker did Miss Linda give you? A star. A star. So without further ado, we're going to get back to the show with Misha. And now we're going to delve more into the science and the biology of why it is important being outdoors. So without further ado, here is Misha. So I came across the work that you do basically at the school from a, web a webinar that you did recently. Mm -hmm. um, and that topic was the restorative power of being outdoors um, and the benefit on not only developing minds, but across the board. Sure. Um, so what I would like to focus on now is a little bit of the science as to the why. Why yeah. is it important being outdoors? And how can we leverage that, especially now at this time? Well, so um, one of the first points that I, I sort of like to make is that um, we all know that it feels good. When we spend out time outside, out time, uh, time outside, when we've been inside for a long time, we, we feel fresher, we feel better, and we all do. And, and I think somewhere we're all aware of that. But a really important thing to keep in mind is that the reason why we feel better is that we're hard-coded for it. Biologically, as, as human beings, when we spend time outside, our brain releases neurotransmitters that make us happy because it wants us to form a habit. There is an understanding somewhere deep inside of us that being outside is good for us. And the more we do it, the better we will feel. The reason we feel good is because our body is trying to serialize us doing that more and more. Um, beyond just our mental considerations, subconsciously, we need it. Um, and, and for me, um, it's about calm, which is what a lot of people use nature for. Um, but it's also about um, productivity, and it's about diversity, and it's about perspective. It's about keeping our lived experience fresh is the power of the outdoors, um, especially given the pandemic. And, and for children, I think that's one of the most meaningful things. Um, routine is important for kids. 
routine is important for adults, but novelty is so important too. Um, by mixing up our environment, by by letting nature do its thing every day and just exposing ourselves to it, um, it makes our lives so much more diverse, so much more full of, of a variety of activities and experiences and sensory exposures. Um, and it, it helps punctuate this sort of one setting life we're all forced to live right now. Um, and uh, that has a huge number of effects. I mean, um, it affects our ability to interact with each other. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in my webinar is just walking the dog, just being near an animal that isn't particularly a human. Um, it makes us more willing to interact with other humans productively and kindly. Um, there's some awesome research that's been out there. I mean, it's been going on for 60 years as to the effect of what they call HAIs, human-animal interactions. Um, and they found that they affect how families interact with each other. They affect how children interact with each other. They affect how adults have conversations. They affect our stress reduction levels. They affect our production of all kinds of neurotransmitters, including you know, our release of endorphins. Um, it's, it's, it's so panoramic in the effect that it has on us. Um, and houseplants do that. I mean, just being near a living organism um, that isn't humans um, just makes us more connected to each other, even within our species. Um, and that's, a, that's something we can't do inside. I mean, it's something that is profoundly different. Um, there's just stuff living out there, and it's up to us to go and experience it, and it can really add a lot to our lives when we're locked down like this. Um, and, and I think one of the other huge benefits is just, like I mentioned before, mental acuity. Um, the outdoors is really powerful, keeping us focused. Um, and this sort of, um, one of the ways we've sort of built up the outdoors um, in recent years is this museum mentality that you can look at it and you can hear it. Um, and that's all, you know, that if you touch it, you might break it, you know, or if you touch it worse yet, it might break you. And, and, um, and I find that to be so limiting and so destructive. And, and it's so important that we interact with nature in a safe way, especially as guardians taking children into nature. Um, but the other part of that is that nature is the most sensory diverse, sensory rich classroom there is. And, and taking children out there and encouraging them to sample it all. I mean, foraging is so huge for my daughter. And it's something that I've taught her over time is that hey, that flower, that's pretty, but it's also tasty. <laughs> yeah. Those wild violets, you munch away, girl. There's um, henbit and dead nettle are two weeds that grow everywhere. And they put out these little purple flowers in early spring that are sweet. And she'll just sit and just sample those. She'll just munch away in the yard. And, and um, that's powerful, you know, this idea that you know, sweetness can come from nature, you know, and these aromas that we turn a blind eye to. The sounds and, and the touches that are in nature are just amazing. And, and, you know, the idea of moss, like my daughter calls moss nature's carpet. And it just, and it, it these connections between things we have inside and outside, they, they make the inside more relevant, you know, and, and they help contextualize what we're even doing here, um, which to me is, is a worth that you, 
you can't quite explain, you can't quite put your finger on, but you see in children. Over time, when you expose them to the natural world, you start to notice that they think a little different, you know, and they use their senses a little differently and, and things start to become richer for them. They start to become um, relevant to not just what they're doing in the moment, but who they are, um, which I think is, is so meaningful. And really what all of us as parents and all of us as teachers want is to, to build them up, build up who they are, not just what they know. I think incorporating those senses in my understanding as well, Misha, allows for the foundation of the cognitive brain to develop. I mean, the one thing that I want to add really, really quickly, Marsh, um, is that it's a leveling of the playing field, that the senses are inherent to everyone. We all have a capacity for our senses, and it's how we absorb the information from our world around us. And, and I, I love sensory-based education because it is for everyone taking this pan-sensory approach to education um, and towards child development is a way that we can make sure that no one is ever left behind. That no one is ever forgotten. And, and it's a way for us to protect that right for every child and every adult to learn. So I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert here. This is going to be a little bit of a, a geek out session. Sure. Um, I looked at some of the, the studies that, you sent me on that zip file and sure. you know what it would be a travesty if we didn't touch on a few of those studies i think we all understand it's important being outside but there's also research that that supports this idea yeah so the one study i i found really interesting was the uh importance and the link between air quality and how being indoors with the um with exposure to contaminants, uh, damp, and condensation actually affects a child's behavior. Yeah, so um, that's the Midohas, Kokosi, and Flory study. Um, that's, uh, that was conducted in the UK um, just last year. Um, and, and it's very relevant because um, the study was originally designed, I believe, um, to test the effects of secondhand smoke um, and, and there has been extensive research as to the health implications, um, the physical health implications of secondhand smoke. So um, these researchers kind of wanted to get into uh, what other effects we observe beyond just the immediate physical effects on the lungs, on the development of tissues. They wanted to actually look at how air quality, specifically secondhand smoke, affects brain development, um, the social centers mostly. Um, they wanted to look at, do children behave differently over time when exposed to things like secondhand smoke in an indoor environment? Um, and they tested a variety of factors in putting this study together, and um, it ended up being relevant for environmental air conditions inside that are not secondhand smoke. Um, they found stuffy air, basically having a lack of air circulation in indoor environments for a prolonged period of times detrimentally affects children's cognitive development, but it also detrimentally affects their social development. Um, they found that basically um, by improving air quality, we can assure that children develop um, more socially positive capacities. Um, 
which is fascinating. It, it's kind of one of those things that we don't always think about with air quality. Um, and isolating variables is admittedly very, very difficult in that study. But uh, basically, they found, I mean, to summarize the results, um, is that a lack of fresh air makes people and children more irritable. That's it. Um, scientifically, which is pretty impressive and, and very um, surprising that it can have that big of an impact. And whether it's oxygenation and how the brain is breathing or whether it's, you know, like we talked about a lack of outdoor exposure, um, it's difficult to isolate, but we do know that there is positive correlation there, even if it's not direct um, causation. This one here was a real gem. I think it's a German study done by Battleman in 2015 that looked at the uh, anxiety-reducing effect of uh, a dog, a fish, and a plant in a direct comparison study. Yes, that is Butterman and Ramke. Yeah, that is a, I love that study. And, and I just, I adore it. And for me, it's such a win for houseplants everywhere. Like it, <laughs> it's a direct comparison of these three organisms. Basically, they gave um, a group of adults a public speaking activity, which causes a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. Um, and then they put these adults in a room um, with either a dog or a fish in a fishbowl or a houseplant. And they let them interact with these, these organisms for 15 minutes. And then they measured, um, they, they compared the values of their pre-stress levels and their post-stress levels. And um, the results are just mind-blowing. They found a 56.2% reduction in stress for the dog. They found a 58.2% uh, reduction for the fish. And they found a 45.6% reduction in stress for the houseplant. I mean, it's a 13-point spread between all of those. And, and we don't we think about plants as so innocuous, non-interactive. They don't do anything. They're just respirating and making oxygen or whatever. But it, people weren't even talking to the plant. They were just touching the plant or just sitting next to the plant. And it calms them down so much. And it, it just, I love that study because, um, again, it's so hard to isolate the variables. And people have, you know, researchers have their preferences and participants have their preferences of what they'd like to interact with. But I just think it's so great that people sitting near a plant for 15 minutes can have a 50% reduction in stress. It's just, I mean, it speaks so much of the power of just growing living things near you, you know? And it doesn't have to be foraging. It doesn't have to be wandering out in the woods in the deep of the trails. You could just have a houseplant. And and just spending some time with your houseplant, name it, touch it every once in a while, care for it, it makes such a difference in our stress levels and you know, our ability to interact productively with our world. Guys, we're going to take just our last break. And while we take that break, I would strongly encourage those educators listening today to check out Misha's blog called withoutwindows.com. That again is withoutwindows.com, where he reflects on his role and life as an educator. Um, his article or blog on the power of words especially resonated with me. And uh, during this Teacher Appreciation Week, I would like to give my own little shout out to Miss Linda DeBerry, the principal at Dyesburg Primary School. 
Ma'am, during the last five years, you have always welcomed Kellen up that corridor to the door where you welcomed us with a warm smile and um, a sticker, uh, a star-shaped sticker saying that, Kellen, I see you working so hard. I see you getting stronger. Those words of encouragement have always been a framework on which... Um, Kellen and myself have set and worked on our positive mindset. We've actually collected, believe it or not, those stickers over the past year and our intention was to put that on a card to give you at the end of the school year but that is no longer a possibility. However, um, it is my intent to get that to you somehow. So without further ado, Misha is going to give us a quick rundown on the last two studies, which is the importance of gardening um, and how that affects those individuals with de uh, dementia, which um, is an important topic and relevant to many people in today's society. And the last study touches on how um, looking at green spaces within the urban context um, can affect the behavior of the urban youth. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Misha. Let's just do this one here quickly because I think this um, talks really well about uh, the memory and how this helps our older patients. Yeah. So yeah. the study was the benefits of gardening activities for the cognitive function um, and actually where they measured the brain nerve growth factor levels. Uh, yes. Let's talk about that one, Misha. Yeah, that's um, Park Lee, Park and Lee. from That was last year as well. Um, that was conducted in South Korea. Um, and basically what they did was um, they took geriatric patients um, that were uh, subject to dementia, symptoms of dementia. Um, and they took them out and just did one hour of gardening multiple times a week, um, very light stress levels. Uh, so it was cleaning pots and planting seeds, um, removing weeds, no tilling, no, no, um, no, hard, no hard, difficult labor involving extensive tools or skills-based operations. And and um, basically, they took blood samples um, before and after these gardening activities um, to test the levels of, of three factors that are directly correlated to um, the formation of new nerve connections in the brain. Um, and basically, what they found was um, after doing these activities, uh, all of the patients um, demonstrated significant increases um, in brain-derived neurotropic factor um, and platelet-derived growth factor, um, both of which are so influential in forming new neural connections. Um, and, and sort of the practical upshot of that is that, you know, we can use gardening as a way to mitigate dementia, which is... Uh, you know, and the research is is preliminary, obviously, and fresh, but it that is so powerful. And and you know, and those studies are are not unique. Those studies are part of a whole umbrella of studies aimed at fixing our social anxiety disorders, fixing our our um, neurological deterioration um, through outdoor exposure. 
Um, it's relevant to dementia patients that are geriatric. It's also relevant to people with chronic depressive disorders. It's relevant to people with social anxiety. It's relevant to um, children that have difficult with difficulty with integration in school environments. They found children with autism spectrum disorders in blended inclusive environments and classrooms um, are able to interact more effectively with their peers when they're unified by um, simple repetitive tasks outdoors. They can kind of connect with each other and cooperate in ways through tactile experiences that otherwise they can't do with their words. And, um, and you know, it just goes back to what we were talking about before is that the senses, especially in the context of nature, they are, they are the great leveler. They are the thing that keeps us all able to learn in our own unique paradigm regardless of our ability, regardless of our age, regardless of the way we think and the way we're constructed, we can do it outside. We can all learn um, in the way that fits us best. Misha, for our youth that are in urban areas that may not necessarily have access to wide open spaces, how can we brainstorm around that idea? What strategies are there for kids in urban areas? Uh, I, I mean, this, this Marsh, this kind of connects to um, Sobel's thinking. Um, David Sobel uh, is all about place-based education. He's a great writer um, who's been talking about it forever and how important it is. But, but nature is everywhere. Nature is in the heart of the city. Nature is in the middle of the woods or the middle of the plains. It's in the mountains. It's in our living rooms. I mean, it, it, this idea that it doesn't count unless you're immersed is simply not true. And any amount more is the right amount. And especially for children in urban areas, helping them get connected to the nature that is present where they are is so important. And instead of trying to replace that nature or create artificial contexts or put children that are used to urban environments in non-urban environments that might surprise them or jar them, um, it's so powerful to to get them to take a second look and notice the nature where they are because it is everywhere. Um, teaching children about the varieties and the the genetic variation within pigeons is amazing. Um, teaching children about songbirds that are present all over, even in urban areas, um, and keeping children attached to the green they do find. Cities are full of trees. Now more than ever, people are realizing that it's important and learning the names of those trees make walks very, very different in urban environments. Um, squirrels are everywhere. There's, there are living things to be seen and experienced. And sometimes in an urban environment, it's all about drawing attention to those things um, because they're there. They're there to be seen and touched and experienced. Um, and again, it has to be done in a safe way. But... Um, there's, there's some um, pretty fascinating research that's ongoing. It's been done for a long time um, by um, the Kaplan Foundation. The Kaplans are, are fantastic researchers. Um, they're psychological researchers specifically focused on natural exposure. Um, but Francis Quo at the University of Champaign-Urbana um, has been doing this awesome research uh, in the, um, the Robert Taylor Homes, um, which is one of the world's largest uh, affordable housing initiatives. So they've been studying urban children um, in that environment and how basically exposure to green spaces affects their ability to socialize effectively, the ability to integrate with their peers um, productively. And um, 
the results are astounding. I mean, and these are not, like I said, these are not immersive outdoor environments. These are not children's access to the middle of the woods or verdant spaces where there's cranes and turtles and things like that. These are open plots of land with grass, sometimes with a tree. Um, and they found that children that can see these spaces out their window, even within the same massive housing projects, have markedly different behavior. Um, their ability to regulate, their ability to critically think, um, their ability to to work together um, is like night and day. Um, and it, it's not about them, you know, getting to the Appalachians. It's about them just looking out their window and seeing that there's something green and growing um, and forming that, that connection. Because no matter how that connection is formed, no matter how it looks, it matters. It really matters in the way we think and the way we feel um, and the way we interact with each other. So Misha, we, we ta- this is going to be part two of the, the quarantine strategy series. What sure. would be your, your, your takeaway for parents from this talk today? Um, I mean, so there's a couple of things um, that are important that we touched on a little bit in our conversation. Um, the first is that the outdoors is the most sensory-rich environment you can ever find. And um, as parents and as teachers, we can spend our time creating diverse and dynamic environments inside. Um, and we'll pull our hair out and we'll buy lots of stuff and we'll try and keep it rich and fresh and exciting. Um, or we can let nature do that on its own because it does. It changes every day. Every day is different. Every day has something new, something fresh, something exciting, something new alive, something new not alive for children to experience. Um, and when we do away with spending time on artificially constructing those things and just get out there with them, um, we find that all that time we used to spend on artificially constructing things can be spent just being with them and just connecting with them on a different level um, and really getting to know them in a, in a fresh and exciting context. Um, Please. Sorry, Misha, for those parents and educators that would like to, to reach out to you, um, we mentioned your website for the school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we just go ahead and give them that information again, please, sir? Yeah, um, the school's website is www.anewleaf.org. Um, I also have a personal blog, so um, if you're interested in checking that out, um, I have a blog that's called Without Windows, so www.withoutwindows.com. Um, and that is specifically focused on all range of topics um, for teachers and parents about sort of the dovetailing of the Reggio Emilia approach um, and nature education. So uh, it's all over the board. Uh, but please check that out as well and, and, you know, and put your two cents in because that's an ongoing dialogue for all of the articles I have written there. Um, and that touches on topics like um, the war on play, like why children are allowed, aren't allowed to play as much anymore. Um, it talks about music, natural exposure, the benefits of being lost. Um, there's so many articles that are that are um, that are relevant now more than ever. I think we're going to have to wrap that up. But sir, thank you so so much. Um, no problem, Marsh. Thank you so much for having me. I I had a blast talking to you, um, and it just it's nice to be tied into as many communities I can be tied right. into, and and that's I just. Right connection's more important than it ever has been. And, and if you ever need anything, reach out. Um, and if your readership, if your listeners 
um, have any questions, feel free to reach out whenever you guys like. Thank you, Misha, for providing us with that awesome content. To remind you again, Misha blogs at withoutwindows.com. Please check that out. And the preschool in Nashville that he works at is called A New Leaf. And they have a website as well, anewleafnashville.org. Well, we have come to the end of another show, guys. And remember, check out our blog at RaisingKillen.org. And if you need to reach me, you can reach me at RaisingKillen at gmail.com. Please like and share this podcast. And um, as always, I would like to remind you to get to the top of your mountain. And today I'm going to be signing out together with Kellen. Bye, guys. And then you have a bath. Good job, Kellen. <laughs>